Would you allow the words of Jesus to restore you to lead a life with greater integrity? Would you hear them? Would you allow them to be what they really are, the very words of God? And would you stand with me as I read from John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, and I'll go down to verse 35. This is the very word of God. On the next day, that is the day after he fed the 5,000, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. Now, Jesus' focus is now on the crowd. Verse 23 alludes to the fact that there was a storm perhaps the night before, and a boat Boats blew over to the other side of the lake where the crowd, now without access normally to the vessels, now had access to boats which they used to sail across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And there they find Jesus. And when they find Jesus, the king of the waters, he responds to their ridiculous questions with like an amazing humility that we're going to see. And the teaching from this passage that John wants us to see is this, that Jesus, Jesus satisfies our deepest need, not in the ways we expect, but in the ways we would earnestly desire if we could see the world from God's perspective. Jesus satisfies our deepest need. Not in the ways that we expect, but in ways we would earnestly desire ourselves if we could see our lives from God's perspective. Keep that in mind as you look at the text. 
Today, we have a need for deep value, don't we? We value things. And we value the quality of things over the quantity. I know, I've seen how you drink your coffee. I've seen how some of you guys like your scotch. I've seen the kind of clothing that you wear. I know the kind of quality that you like. Like, we're, we're all about value today. The world is about value. And I guarantee you, tonight, when you watch, if you watch, some of us will watch the 50-some-odd Super Bowl commercials that are going to happen tonight. Every one of them, they're not selling you a product. They're selling you a vision for the good life. The typical American vision of what it's like to hold a beer in your hand and to see it actually happen for you. What is it like to have technology that can see through smoke? What is it like for us to be the kind of humanity that we're called to be? What is it like to go beyond the pale of 4G to 5G? What is it like? It's a vision. They sell you not on a product, they sell you on a vision. And we know that to be true because when you read the Old Testament, you see what has become a very famous book for many of us, a, a, a verse for many of us, that where there is no vision, the people perish. Or where there is no prophetic utterance, the people cast off restraint. In other words, where there is no vision, where there is no value, we are left unmoored, untethered, unanchored. One translation of Proverbs 29, 18, that verse, says that where there is no guidance from God's word, people run wild. We value value. And in this text, John, it's as though he knows what our felt needs are. John comes to us and he asks the question, all right, what has lasting value? What has lasting value? And what tools do you have to get it? And why should you even care? And then we see that in this text. What has lasting value? What tools has, do we have as God's people? And why should we even care? When, when John wants us to read this passage, he wants us to see this remarkable sight that Jesus had just deftly escaped this crowd to go off on a mountain and pray alone. And they track him down. And when they track him down, they ask him what we looked at last week is this utterly ridiculous question. When did you get here? And Jesus, like, doesn't even answer their question. He totally ignores it. Is that nice? No, we, we teach our kids to answer questions, right? But Jesus totally ignores their question because he's trying to give them a second chance. He's trying to say, oh, I know what you mean to ask. You mean to ask, what has value? Oh, I see. And so he tells them. He says, truly, truly, one of the 25 times that we see that phrase in John. He says, heads up. Are you with me? Listen, heads up. What I'm about to tell you is important. Jesus says, I tell you that you are seeking me, not because that you saw signs, but because you had your bellies full. He changes their question. Jesus says that the question you should be asking is what has lasting value? Because Trinity, we are all by default chasing after a thousand visions. The text in, in the Old Testament where there is no huzzah in Hebrew, no vision, no revelation, the people perish. That's true. But in your world and in my world, there's not one vision, is there? 
there are thousands of visions. And while one, without one vision, we perish, friends, your problem is not that you have one. Your problem is that you have so many that you're paralyzed and that you don't know which vision to chase. You're constantly being sold a bag of goods. You think that we as autonomous Western people are free. You're not free. Holy cow, you're the most oppressed people in the world, but the oppression is so subtle that we don't even know it, but we feel it. Jesus says to them, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Do not work for the food, brazon, that is apolomenane, ruined or destroyed, spoils, is of little value, but work for the food that is Menusen es zoe aeonion, food that endures, menusen, unto ace, life, zoe, eternal, aeonion. In English, we only have one word for life, but the Greeks, of course, didn't have that problem. They had several words for life. There's, there's bios, and students, if you're in biology, you know, that's a study of flesh and bone. Jesus wasn't talking about flesh and bone. He was talking about zoe. He was talking about life to the full, fullness of life, the shalom, life indeed. And here Jesus is saying, I tell you that you can have eternal shalom, eternal life, life, joy, fullness. And the crowd came to Jesus to solve their social and their economic and their political needs. And they had one idea of what zoe looked like. And Jesus offers them another And this is the basic message of the Christian gospel, that sin tells us that life is found in food or sex or quality of our items or achievement or power or entertainment or money or performance, and we crave to be satisfied by those things. But Jesus comes to us and says, that's not living. You're oppressed. Let me offer you an alternative, an alternative A different way, Jesus says. Here is living. And he points to himself. Now, that might seem crazy. um, And indeed, it is. Um, It seemed crazy to them as well. But let's keep going. How How are we to get the tools to know how we are to choose the real zoe, the real life that Jesus offers us? Look at what Jesus says next. It says, the Son of Man will give to you. It's a gift. The Son of Man will give to you. My Father gives you the true bread. The Son of Man gives it to you. We have to receive it. It's a gift. In Scripture, miracles are symbols for something greater than the miracle itself. Jesus' miracles come with a meaning inherent in and depicted by the miracle. Several years ago, um, my children and I wanted to give Lauren, uh, my wife, breakfast in bed. So we, we, we cooked breakfast. We, we cut up some fruit. We brought her coffee the way she likes it. And we, we brought it to her in bed. It was a wonderful celebration. It was awesome. People, people, you know, they, my, the kids totally dug it. They got into it. But my kids n- knew that they weren't bringing breakfast to mom in bed because she was merely hungry. 
It wasn't about feeding her belly. What was it about? It was about something much greater. It was about showing mom how much we love her and how much we respect her and how much we are so thankful for the way she sacrifices for our family every day. And in the same way, there is meaning depicted in the miracles themselves. We do this all the time throughout our relationships. If you're, if you're married or if you have roommates, you know what this is like. You know, you, you share duties in your apartment or you, 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 sometimes one of the spouses will do laundry for the other and you'll say to the other, hey, thanks for doing the laundry. It's not really about the laundry. It's like saying, hey, thanks for being in life with me, for partnering with me. This is pretty cool how we do mundane things like laundry, but there's actually a much deeper meaning to it. Thank you that you're a partner with me, helping me pay rent at the apartment, helping me through marriage, enjoy what it's like to raise a family up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Things that we do that seem mundane are actually often much deeper than that. And that's what miracles are too in the New Testament. They are things that the Lord intends for us to see deeper things depicted by very common experiences. And so, the crowd says to Jesus, 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 thanks for the food. Thanks for the laundry. Thanks for feeding me in bed. And Jesus says, you missed the whole point. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was not about feeding you physically. It was about feeding you spiritually. At the heart of why I'm here is not merely to care for your bodies, but it is to care for your souls. My authority knows no bounds. I can feed 5,000 people on a grassy knoll. And I can change hardened hearts and make them live again. I can take addicts who seem to have no hope for survival and I can put them back together. I can take two people in one house who are scared to death to live together and I can bring peace to that house. I can do things you couldn't utterly imagine. You know why? Because all authority is given to me by my father. And Philip Rafe is a sociologist who talks about first, second, and third cultures. He talks about pre-Christian, Christian, and post-Christian cultures. And the, the, the first culture is the pre-Christian culture. This is the culture before Jesus. This is before the colonization of, of much of, of Western Europe. This is, this is the culture that has many gods. This is the culture that often uses uh, their spirits and everything. There are gods behind every tree and every rock. And, and that their reality is assumes that spiritual um, realities are always at play. This is Africa before the modern missions movement. This is uh, paganism before the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is, this is Europe before it was developed. This is, this is, frankly, America before the Plymouth Brethren. That's the first culture. It is a, it is a pre-Christian culture. And then there are, there's a second culture, and this is the world... That was pagan and secular. Stay with me. It was pagan and secular. That has been Christianized. This is America after the Puritans. Right? This is India after William Carey. This is Africa. This is Australia. And then what Europe comes and colonizes those lands. Right? They bring the gospel to these lands. And that from the bedrock of that society. It rests upon the notion of Christian values and Christian principles. That's the second culture that sociologists talk about. Where the gospel is all over that culture. Where people know there's one true God. It's Judeo-Christian values shot through and through. The values of Jesus are just assumed in the second culture. And then sociologists talk about a third culture. 
And the third culture is what we call a post-Christian culture. And this, frankly, is the moment that we are living in more and more and more. And if you've come to Central America, not Central America, the central part of the United States from the coasts, then you know what this is like, right, weavers? You see that we are living in a post-Christian America, even in places like Tulsa. And you feel a bit insulated from it, but you feel the tensions rising again and again as you begin to watch your friends and your families leave the church and downplay the authority of God. And all of your tools for talking to them about the gospel just seem to fall on deaf ears. They don't connect anymore. Fifty years ago, it was very easy to share the gospel. And most people, because our culture as a whole was relatively second culture, they would be pulled back in. But now we're a post-Christian culture, and everything is pushing out. Don't you feel that? People in a, a third culture, they throw off all authority. They, the only authority that exists is the authority of their own expertise. And so you have worlds where seventh graders argue with PhDs based upon the value of their own opinions. And what we've become very good at in a third culture is deconstructing the established institutions of our day. And so we, we deauthorize the university, we deauthorize the church, we deauthorize the family. This happens over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to get there with tools, I promise. But we know, we know that one of the problems of second culture, going to first cultures, William Carey going to India, right? Hudson Taylor going to China. Uh, the Wesley brothers coming to Georgia. We know that the struggle, the struggle of the second culture into the first culture, what happened was that the second culture colonized the first culture. Rather than try to utilize the beauty of that first culture, they colonized it and they made, the Christians made those first cultures dress like them, act like them, dress, do everything like them. And so what would happen? You would say, is that, is that area fraught with the gospel? Is it thick with the gospel? Do we, have we saturated the market? And they would say yes, because they have tea at four o'clock. And we've put cultural norms onto the first culture. And the problem with that missions movement was that we tended to colonize those earlier cultures. Now, if you're in a third culture, we tend to use the same patterns in seminary, they teach you, use the common language of the, of the culture. And so this is why you have church plants today that are, that are planting in pubs. This is why, you know, 20 years ago, that was the thing to do. Go start a church and start it in a pub. Or play rock music at, at church because you're trying to connect with the culture, right? You're trying to subtly connect with them. And, and we were trying to avoid the patterns and problems of the previous 300 years of the missions movement by using the given cultural norms. But what has happened in a third culture is as we as Christians try to use the norms and the values and the trends and be relevant to a post-Christian world, what actually ends up happening is that we, we don't colonize them, we get colonized. And when that happens, you begin to find that that you go hang out with people and you, you say, I'm going to just do incarnational evangelism. Great. And what that's pretty much made you do is now all of a sudden you're like totally addicted to their way of life. Or you think, well, I'm just going to go live this, you know, I'm going to go live with those people. But the problem is now you just look like those people. 
And they have colonized you so easily. Listen, you hear this all the time, and I hear this all the time with people. I hear it with you. Like, God, I'm really struggling with God's word. I just don't know what, what because you, we are colonized. We have so easily taken upon the values of a third culture that now we stand as the authority over God's word, and we don't even think that's weird or odd. It is. The other day, I was in my kitchen, and one of my sons needed, needed some, some fatherly correction. And so I, I corrected him. And, and this little guy pulled his arm away from me, and he looked at me, and he said, Who put you in control of my life? I mean, I'm a minister. We talk about the gospel a lot in our house. But where did that little dude drink that stuff from? He's being discipled, and he has been dis- he's being discipled quickly into knowing that he is in control of his life. He's six. How much more is that true for you? In a third culture, like we're in, frankly, there's no going back to the 1950s. And if you want to have a support group that meets on Wednesday night at Trinity House to grieve with me about that, please feel free. Some of you are like, we don't want to go back to the 1950s because they were incredibly intolerant of people that look different than them and amen to that. We don't want to go back there for that reason either. We're not going back. So the question is, how then do we go forward? How do we learn to exist as a creative minority, even in Tulsa? Because truthfully speaking, we have this kind of veiled religion that has come over the church that we begin to believe. And all it is is being colonized by the world and then tagging a thank you Jesus onto it. It's not distinct. And so some of the most mundane, normal things in your life, you're trying to escape through experiences. But what if it was the mundane, the holding of your child in worship so a mother can get some rest, the bringing a, a, a crock pot up to the sixth grade center so we can have lunch together? What, what if we get to heaven one day and Jesus says, you know the way you evangelized during your lifetime? You filled somebody's glass. You pulled up an extra chair. You welcomed them to community because people were so desperately lonely. And we're lonely because we have pulled back And we become our own authorities. And when you're your own authority, you're constantly tossed by a thousand visions. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But our problem is that when you have so many visions, you become paralyzed. And you think you're free, but you're not. You're not. We were never free. I mean, we don't have the secret police like Orwell had. It's not like we have people walking around in leather jackets telling Winston Smith what to do like in 1984. We have very good-looking people wearing Apple shirts in an Apple store. And they become the secret police because when you sign those terms of agreement that you all sign without even thinking about it, you don't think, you think I'm getting more freedom, more technology, but actually becoming more and more and more owned by the curated life that you now feel the pressure to have to keep up. And so therefore, guys, we are in a totally different world in evangelism and in mission. It's totally different. And we as a church stand on the forefront of being able to actually build something beautiful, not just a facility, but build a community that is something for the world by being a creative minority that says we stand on God's word. And we do so against all the pressures 
of the contemporary relevant winds of civil society that tell us that we are our own authority. And Jesus comes to these people who say to him, oh, we know all about you. We've been there, done that. We know that Moses gave our people, our fathers, manna in the wilderness. He satisfied them once. And Jesus says to them, verse 35, I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. And moms and dads, if you want to raise your children to love Jesus in 40 years, it starts now. It starts now by pushing against the winds of the third culture and being able to say, we are a creative minority. And there are some things our family doesn't do. Sundays are a Sabbath for us. So that may limit some of the things that we do, but they limit us for freedom. They don't limit us for oppression's sake. We read our Bible. We wonder why we've drifted spiritually, because many of you, when was the last time you read your Bible? You just read it. I mean, is it any strange coincidence that the narrative of your life has gone far from the narrative of Scripture? When was the last time you just sat and read it and communed with it and, and, and prayed? When was the last time you prayed? When's the last time you lived in some of the most mundane things of Christian discipleship? And those are the things that as a creative minority we have to lean into again and again and again and again. And therefore that creates an environment where we can bring our good questions and talk about them with freedom. And you should bring those good questions to us. It doesn't matter where we work, live, or play. We are all breathing the air of a third culture of secularism. And Philosopher uh, James K. Smith said that it is not just religion that disciples. Our culture disciples us. Every structure of a culture carries a worldview and a form of teaching that shape and constitute our identities by forming our most fundamental desires and our most basic attunement to the world. They prime us to approach the world in a certain way, to value certain things, to aim for certain goals, to, be, to pursue certain dreams, to be a certain kind of person. The average person today in the West has in their heads a set of assumptions that are culturally imbibed. Where we say that if something is mundane, it must therefore be boring. And so we get on our screens. We say that if something is old, it must therefore not be true. And so we search for what's novel. If relationships that exist, that exist for your, your shalom... We think, oh, I know those people. I'm going to move on to somebody else. And so we cut down our marriages and we cut down our friendships because we don't know what it's like to live as those who have true bread. Now, Jesus, about these tools, he uses a phrase that may sound confusing. He says, the Son of Man will give to you. The Son of Man is an ancient way of referring to the Messiah in the Old Testament. Daniel calls Jesus the son of man. And he calls him the ancient of days. And Jesus understood himself to be the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7.13. And more than any other title, Jesus calls himself 16 times in John. He refers to himself as the son of man. It was the one who stands behind 
all the happenings of the Old Testament. Jesus is the true prophet who comes that Nathan read earlier in Malachi chapter 3. He's the one that comes to satisfy you. There's a part in Genesis that alludes to a ladder. Remember the story of, of Jacob and the ladder, and, and he sees the one. Jesus is the son of man who's ascending to descend. He's the son of man at the top of the ladder. Why? Because Jesus is the one that bridges that gap between heaven and earth. He provides for you that true food if you have ears to hear him. So how do we sharpen our tools as disciples living in, as a creative minority? We spend routine time in his word, yes. We, we come to worship, yes. We partake of the Lord's Supper, yes. All these things, we do this together. Because this is what Christ has called us to do as a creative minority. But why should we even care about these things? We should care about these things because on Jesus, the Father has set his seal when you go to the grocery store this week and you find an open package or an open bottle, would you buy it? No, you wouldn't buy it. Why? Because the seal is broken. It has no seal. And the seal was an ancient way to mark something as untampered, secure, of enduring value. When a, when a king would send a letter, he would put a signet ring in wax and he would seal the letter to say this letter is untampered. And so also, friends, we have the gospel we have Jesus. In a world of a thousand visions, Jesus gives us the one true vision, the one true picture of reality. And he says, I am here, sealed, the true fresh bread that you so desperately need. Would you take it? Those of you who are in this room who are just exhausted by a thousand visions, would you come take it? Would you come to the supper? Would you take it? By faith, Saying, I'm tired of running to a thousand things. Jesus, I want to run to you. You are the true bread of life. We have lots of artos in this passage. Lots of bread in Greek. Just like today, we have lots of visions. We have lots of things that we place value on. And at the cross, Jesus took all that was valueless upon himself. He took all of your distraction upon himself. Jesus, as one commentator has said, took the chaos of your life upon himself at the cross so that he might give you order once again to be able to lay your deadly doings down, down at Jesus' feet and trust in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Would you come? Jesus says, or us, come to me. Come to me. Exercise your freedom. The Father is given you into my hands. Come to me. Exercise your freedom for something that will last. Take him. He's given you the true bread, eternal life. Will you take it? Friends, come. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who feeds on you, the true bread of life. In a world that is like a bad cafeteria where everything else is tainted. Father, we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see, that you would help us to have ears to hear, that you would help us to have arms of love, that you would help us to fill glasses, toast to each other, and to the glory of the gospel, share life together, raise our children together, encourage each other, shepherd each other, and I pray, Lord, that you would do this for your glory's sake. Help us learn now 
what it means to be a creative minority so that we are prepared to extend your gospel in a world when we truly are the minority. And I pray, Lord, that you would also help us to be good stewards of what you've given to us as we now take up the tithes and offerings for your glory's sake and for our joy. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.